Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Nobody works the lounge better than he does, honestly. You, you get him with a glass of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot, and, and uh, to hear him recall some of the the stories of when he was a first-year assistant coach with Larry Costello, uh, working in the uh, NBA um, and dealing with Oscar and dealing with uh, Kareem. And uh, it really is uh, a few generations back that is eye-opening. And his ability to recall is amazing, one thing. And then to recall it with the detail that he does um, is great. He's, he, he is the best storyteller uh, in the NBA that I'll ever be around. That was today's guest, Mark Jones of ESPN and ABC from back in May on the Catch and Shoot podcast. He's talking about analyst Hubie Brown, who's still going strong at the beautiful age, the young tender age of 86. Mark was a major presence in parts one and two of The Last Dance on ESPN. We'll talk bulls, TV, and have some laughs, of course. With Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Thank you, Darlene. All right, so Mark Jones is one of the most versatile and knowledgeable play-by-play voices anywhere in sports. I don't care, at me. His (laughs) 1990s work in the ESPN studio was prominently featured in the first two parts of The Last Dance. Mark and Bruce worked together on the NBA Today from 1994 to 1996 when MJ was returning from baseball and starting the process of the three-peat number two. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, Monica, Bruce, thanks for having me. That uh, that was a great time, man. The, the Jordan age and, you know, working with Bruce in the studio show on the NBA today. I, I, I remember that as the golden Roman era age of ESPN for me. That is a fantastic way to describe it. All right, so I can't wait for you and Bruce and all of us to get into this conversation, but let's... <laughs> there though mark the documentary first of all six million people tune in it lived up to all the hype and i loved throwback mark jones anchoring sports center at points in the documentary what about that huh like people yeah that i've been this is going to be my 30th year this june it will be my 30th year at espn uh i began as a uh sport <laughs> yeah really hey i'm up for the gold watch soon man i'll be waiting for that thing to come in the mail when i hit june 1st but um, you know, I, I yeah, started off with a as check. A, it's in the mail. Yeah. Yeah. That too. <laughs> That's I'll be waiting on that one first, Bruce. But, uh, yeah, it, it's funny. I started off as a sports center anchor and host of the NBA today. In addition to some play by play duties, uh, with ES with, uh, ABC 
in college basketball and college football and uh it's it's been a great run for me and uh those nights uh working the sports center uh studio used to do the 2 a.m. show actually we actually had a 2:30 a.m. show that would rerun the next day a couple of times and uh I worked that show a lot with uh with Mike Tarico when he came in a year after me and uh had the pleasure of working with a lot of the you know, legendary voices there like Bob Lee and, uh, you know, John Saunders and, you know, Boomer once or twice, uh, Chris Berman. And, uh, man, it was, like I said, it was a real fun time, a, a real simple but very fun time. And, you know, it was, it was a great, great experience for me. That is incredible. All right. So in the midst of this fun time, you were covering Michael Jordan in real time. And obviously for me, like, first I know Michael Jordan from Space Jam, and then it was the sneakers, and then I fully began to grasp his greatness as an athlete. But in the moment, Mark, did you feel like you were watching arguably the GOAT kind of ascend? It's funny because, like, we – you could feel that Michael's greatness, especially, you know, my, my first NBA Finals following him – was the Portland Chicago Bulls series in 92. And we were on the road for each and every one of those games, uh, doing pregame, postgame interviews with Michael. And when he was on the court, uh, Monica, you could see and feel his gravity, his, his dominance, the way that he would, I mean, he was eviscerating like Hall of Famers like Clyde Drexler and other great players like uh, Terry Porter. I mean, just when it was time, he just destroyed people. And, you know, in real time, you, you didn't really have the feel for the perspective of where he would be in the Pantheon and the Mount Rushmore of basketball. But when you think about it, I was thinking about it, geez, you know, back then the argument was for, for guys my age and, and my demographic, it was, okay, Dr. J or, or Michael. And then as Michael began to ascend through the 90s, the early 90s, as all-round skill, his game, his, his dominance, uh, it became clear that Michael was well on his way to being, you know, the best. You know, especially, especially as you got to the end of the first three championships that they won. You could, you could really feel it happening. Hey, Mark, it's Bruce. What, during that time, was there an aha moment where you all of a sudden realized, okay, I've seen Kareem, I've seen Magic, I've seen Bird, I've seen all of them, because you have. You're old enough. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Was there, was, yeah. Was there an aha moment that you remember saying, that's when you knew he had ascended to the absolute pinnacle of basketball players? It, it, it was, um, I would say, you know, it was the six three-pointer game that was an early indicator for me when, you know, I, I people – he was so fundamentally sound and so skilled that I think that his mid-air acrobatics kind of overshadowed a lot of stuff in the first few years. But in that championship series against Portland, when I remember uh, being close to courtside on that, when he hit, I think it was his, his, last, his fifth or his sixth three-pointer in that game, and he hit it right over the top of Cliff Robinson, who was right up in his grill, and that's the one when he famously turned and with his palms skyward to the basketball gods saying, hey, I can't believe it either. That was, that was the moment, too. Like, you're thinking of my, I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, you mean he's going to mid-range people to death, 
He's going to dunk on people to death, and now he's going to shoot threes, like, and he's going to dominate defensively by locking down you know, uh, Drexler and Porter. What else is he going to do? And for me, that was really a, a, a turning point. And then you know, there, were, there were other points. I, I, I remember when um, you know, after the series that first time around, he would come into, and Bruce, you probably remember there was a car wash of networks that he would have to go through post game he would stop with the networks and uh he would come and sit down with me when he was along that path and even though he was being interviewed by us and I'd ask him a question everything kind of came back to him being able to try and dominate and that's when his his killer instinct his spirit his 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 gravitas really started to uh you could, when it started to register on me and it, it would be like in that 92 Portland Blazers series where he really showed his greatness early. And then obviously there was the, the crowning shot against the Utah Jazz over Brian Russell. Um, there were a couple moments in between that maybe weren't as quite as definitive, but those are the ones, especially that first one, the 6-3 pointer game that stuck out for me. You know, it's funny. When I asked you that question, I didn't really have an answer for myself because it all kind of ran together for me for all those years. But now that yeah. you mention it, I really do think that was the moment because that reaction from him was like, damn, even I don't believe I'm doing this. Yeah, yeah. It was it was an out-of-body experience. Like I said, I mean, like Michael was all defensive player. He, he, he was prolific driving and dunking on guys. His mid-range game was unstoppable. Uh, and, and you thought, holy cow, this guy's made six threes. I mean, what's Portland going to do now? They had tried everybody on him. They, they had Jerome Kurt, and that Portland team was extremely good. They, they ran through the Western Conference that year, and they had a great defender in Jerome Kersey. They had uh, Michael gave it to Kersey. He gave it to Cliff Robinson. He gave it to Drexler. He gave it to everybody that they put on him. And uh, that was the moment where I started thinking, oh, my gosh, this – this is over, and this guy, I don't even know if he's got a ceiling, you know? Man, that is, I'm so, I mean, I'm thrilled to be a millennial, but I'm so jealous that you guys <laughs> take all that in, in person. Yeah, and the, one of the other things, too, was he was, um, you know, I think about this day and age with social media and Twitter. I mean, Michael was so, Monica, Bruce, he was so accessible, he would come in. Here's the routine I remember from the NBA Finals. At the old Chicago Stadium, where, where we were still you know, at at the time in the early 90s, he would drive down that curved tunnel. It, was all, it almost had a bat cave feeling to it. And he would step out of his car. He would be flanked by a couple security guards. His trainer, Tim Grover, would be there. And he would walk right into the um, interview room with NBC, and he would – take his stuff into the Bulls locker room. And he would always sit. I remember at the Bulls locker room, he had the first locker, one of the first two lockers as he went into the Bulls locker room. And he would sit right there. He wouldn't do like a lot of guys do, unfortunately, now. Like a lot of the premier players, the elite players in the NBA, you rarely see them in the locker room. They hide in the trainer room until one or two minutes before the locker room closes to the media. Then they come out, they take a couple questions, and it's over, right? So Michael, he would sit in the first or second locker room stall in the old Chicago Stadium Bulls locker room and sit around, and you could interview him. I'd sit down beside him and 
talk to them. Hey, how, how's the family doing? How are your kids? And do you, do you see that hockey game or baseball game last night? And and he'd love hearing, you know, some of the other gossip that, that was going around. And he'd see me and say, hey, Marky, the other MJ, the other MJ. Because one time I, I jokingly called him the other MJ. And he, that's something that he le- never let me forget about. He was incredibly accessible for a superstar player back then. Actually, there were three MJs, right? Because, you know, Magic was in the club with you two guys also, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I belong there, but I'll, I'll take it anyway. You <laughs> belong right there, Mark. We love it. But okay, I do want to ask you this, though, because since we're taking in The Last Dance, and it has been incredibly well done, we're all enjoying the ride. But the more pieces that we're reading coming out from various outlets and reputable outlets, I'm not saying these things are gossipy, There's this, there seems to always be this line that there was this tussle with MJ about releasing this thing now and the timing being right and his legacy and these kind of underlying things. But to hear you tell it, he was especially accessible. What do you think some of the push and pull has kind of been? Cause you know, the New York times has this whole think piece on is this piece d- defense by MJ? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't understand it. I think it's, um, you know, it, it might have to be, might have to do more with um, some of the corporate dynamics going on and just kind of where we are right now with, with this pandemic, but, uh, you know, I've heard the overtones about Michael wanting to get out in front of it and control his own narrative and all that stuff. But I mean, the story's already written and, and, and I witnessed it uh, and it was amazing. And, you know, Michael was, you know, he was a hard guy to play with. I mean, for me, he, he, people talk about Chris Paul being, you know, really hard on his teammates and blah, 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 blah. Michael was that on steroids, like exponentially. You know, I, I remember um, hanging around with Ron Harper a lot, um, and he was kind of on the, the back end of that six-title run. And um, Ron would tell me stories about how hard, and you saw some of it in the Last Dance documentary, how hard he was on his teammates, Michael. And, you know, it was all they understood. He wanted to win. I mean, him and Steve Kerr got in a fight in practice once. But, you know, like that's how you earned Michael's respect, by barking back. And, you know, I don't think that uh, the release of this really is all that important in the big picture of things. I'm glad that they released it now. And I I love seeing him sitting down in his Florida home just up the highway here. Uh, You know, I'm down in South Florida. He's up the highway in in Boca, a little bit beyond there. And he's sitting down, relaxed and and letting it all hang out, censored or uncensored, whichever version you want to hear. I like that he had that little glass of scotch on the table right next to him. I'm, I'm sure uh, he, he didn't. It didn't sound like he was taking any sips from it. It just looked like a really cool prop that he had there. Bruce, or maybe it was Bruce. maybe it was you, root beer. You, Bruce, if you notice, I think I noticed like midway through, it got a little bit lower in level. I don't think there was a. <laughs> if, if you go back to the start of it and then check at the end, I think he must have had a couple of sips about, uh, of of that scotch. Twitter yeah. definitely noticed that, Mark, for sure. That was a buzz. They did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, it's it, it's so funny because so much of what, you know, what I enjoyed in watching the show was really seeing kind of the flashbacks in time. And, and at one point there, I saw you and a very, very young David Aldridge, a friend to what all of us, that? Monica's friend. Is, and I thought to myself, that was the NBA Today. 
that was the original jam posse led by the one and only Mark Jones. And to me, it was like, I felt like, wow, I really do feel connected to this thing now. Yeah. At Bruce, it was great to see some of the, some of the old faces that we worked with. Right. I mean, uh, the great lineage on that show and, you know, David Aldridge, you mentioned him, uh, Mark Stein coming aboard, David Moore, uh, you know, Freddie Carter at times, um, you know, of course, the late, great Dr. Jack Ramsey, one of the oh, best yeah. to ever do it. Um, you know, for context, Monica, that, that show was really groundbreaking at its time because there was no social media. There was no 24-hour around-the-clock coverage of the NBA you watch the NBA today every Tuesday to get up to speed. And, you know, we had great writers on there like David Aldridge and, and Mark Stein, David Moore, that kind of brought everybody up to speed on some of the recent, uh, you know, machinations that were going on um, around the league. So it was, Mark, it was really fun that way. And, and, I, and I don't want to embarrass you, Mark, but you were so much more than just a host on that show. You were really sort of like the – the, the the heartbeat of that show, you would bring in guys like Doc Rivers sometimes to, and I mean, nobody was doing that back then. You were just, you were very forward thinking in your approach. And that's, it's no surprise that you're still on top of your game and even better 25 years later. Man, appreciate that, Bruce. You know, we just, I think the the teamwork and the energy that we had when Bruce, we sat down and we had our production meetings, there was so much positive vibration in that room and, you know, the NBA family is a very passionate family, and, you know, it's all about the great relationships that we all have. So to be able to reach out to a Doc Rivers and have him on the show or reach out to different players and say, hey, would you love to come on with us, uh, that really kind of enhanced our coverage, and uh, it, it made the show fun. It was, it was a fast-moving uh, half hour of informative and entertaining television. You know, it really was. You know, and, and, you know, hey, just to switch subjects real quick, well, just to get back to, I'm sorry, to get back to the the last dance thing, it it reminded me of um, Ron Harper, who was a a real passionate watcher of that show um, when he was with the Bulls. He used to tell me he'd watch it every Tuesday, and he told me a funny story about um, Michael Jordan when he first came back from the Bulls, and I'm not sure whether this is going to appear or not in the documentary but he told me a real funny story about michael and him being on the bus and michael loved to crack on guys he had a real acerbic and sharp sense of humor and he really went at guys sometimes and you know ron harper we all know had um he worked us through a worked his way through a very uh thick at times um stuttering issue and he's gotten very good at you know commanding that right now and getting great control of it but early in his career he would take his time to get through sentences and it was a little bit more pronounced than it is now. So, you know, Michael went after Ron one time on the team bus, they were driving to a game and the bulls were in the middle of one of their winning streaks. Everybody was feeling good. And Michael had just come back from his um, baseball uh, tenure. And he was talking, he was, Michael was really coarse. He was talking about, Hey, Ron, you, you stuttering this, you, you this, you can't be you that, Ron Harper, you're, you're bull this, you're bull that, you, you, and, and then Ron Harper stood up and everyone in the bus turned around and looked at him and he flashed, he flashed up three fingers and then one finger, three fingers and then one finger as if a catcher would do in baseball. And he said, hey, Mike, what was that? And Mike said, I don't know, Ron, what was that? He said, curveball inside you can't hit it 
That's great. <laughs> Go get it. Go get it, Harv. I, I mean, it was it was said in much more colorful terms, of course, but it was it was one of the funniest things that uh, that Ron ever told me about that Bulls uh, run that they were on. That's the one that sticks out in my mind when it comes to his interaction with Mike. That's awesome. Man, that's great. All right, so I have I have two more questions about Last Dance for both you guys. Sure. Again, you guys are taking it all in. And here's the thing. For me, my love story with basketball, I was born in 89, so I didn't really – I think I was on the WNBA before I was on the NBA, so I didn't really get to watch Mike in action that I remember other than the Wizards. But the couple things that stood out from the first two parts, guys, Jerry Krause to me, and then this whole Scottie Pippen thing. Like, one, I did not know Scottie had all those siblings and grew up in – Arkansas, I believe, and that whole story. So with the Kraus thing, now I don't we're obviously not speaking ill of the dead, but what what was that about, Mark? Like was that like widely known? I mean, that it just seems so odd to me. Yeah, that was just, you know, the Kraus thing I was very much aware of. Actually in the clips that they showed from our NBA Today and Sports Center coverage, it was it was very topical at the time. And, you know, the other one was that famous comment that Kraus made that organizations win championships that players don't. And my response on the air at the time was, well, geez, I've never seen a general manager make a baseline jump shot to win a game. Um, it was very well known in, at the time that Scotty was underpaid and, um, you know, undervalued. But, you know, seven years, 18 million coming to a guy from an impoverished area with 11 people in the house and two of them in wheelchairs in Arkansas – you know, that, as Scotty said, you know, that, that may as well have been like $90 million instead of $18 million. So it looked like money that would secure his family's future for a while. It turned out to be a bad deal. And, you know, I, I would, you know, if you're going to blame, you know, Scotty, Scotty doesn't really blame anyone. He was salty about it, deservingly so. But, uh, you know, his agents at the time, I remember it was Kyle Rote Jr. and uh, Jimmy Sexton. And uh, I'm not sure how they let him sign that deal. I, I really don't, you know. Um, but that was that was a big deal. And, and then, you know, Jerry Krause took a lot of heat. I remember the open disdain that, that the Michael had for him and some of the other players had for him, not just because of the Scotty thing, but because he seemed uh, bent on breaking up a potential dynasty. I mean, think about it. I mean, if he doesn't come in and say, I'm going to, this is Phil's last year, I'm hiring Tim Floyd, everybody in the, on the planet at the time was like, Tim Floyd? Iowa State? That Tim Floyd? Why? You know, um, Jerry had a hard time getting out of his own way. You know, it's the thing about Jerry Krause and the Jerry Reinsdorf sort of uh, management team was that it seemed that, you know, we had Charlie Rosen on Mike Wise's show a couple of days ago. And Charlie, as you know, has been friends with Phil Jackson for, you know, going on 50 years. I mean, they go all the way sure. back to the 1970s together. And Mike had asked him if Jerry hadn't told Phil at the beginning in the fall of 97 that the 97-90 season was going to be his final season do you think Michael Jordan would have kept playing? And Charlie said, absolutely, he would have kept playing, and they probably would have won two more championships. The whole dynamic of what went on there, where Jerry Reinsdorf seemingly chose Jerry Krause over Phil Jackson, and by extension, Michael Jordan. I mean, franchises Isn't that bizarre? Dream, That's nuts, yeah. They, 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 franchises dream of having the kind of run the Bulls had 
and they would do anything possible to sustain it as long as it could go. But the Bulls basically just kind of dissolved it on their own. It was just so crazy. Yeah, that that's bizarre. When I when I think about, yeah, they could they could have easily won a couple of more titles easily, and to think that they imploded. It wasn't, you know, it, sure Scotty's money was a little bit funny, and he wanted to get paid, and you know Michael had been underpaid for a long, long time until what those final two years of his contract. I think it was thirty three and thirty six million he got, whatever it was. But, um, you know, think that you could have and amass that kind of talent and still have it blow up in your face like that. Um, You know, I I think there's two sides of it for Jerry Krause. You have to give him credit for putting that thing together. uh, But you also have to point the finger at him for having it blow up the way it did. And and Reinsdorf, he he could have stepped in. He could have stepped in and been, been a stronger voice and made sure that, you know, that dream team they had um, would have continued and won more titles. Hey, uh, go ahead, Monica. No, go for it, Bruce. No, I was just going to say, you've been really, really generous with your time, and I'm hoping we can keep you for just a couple more minutes here, because there was something that I was hoping Monica and I could do with you. We started out the show with a flashback bite from you. You didn't hear it, okay? But it was when you were on one of our other shows earlier in the year, and we asked you for your assessment of Hubie Brown, and you told a funny story about him. So I was wondering, you've worked with every high-profile ESPN analyst. Could we play a lightning round, a word association lightning round with you, give you the name of an analyst, and have you just give us your immediate reaction to, to them? Because sure. I think sure. people would yeah, really enjoy it. hearing that. All right, let's start. Let's start. And Monica, we can go back and forth on this. You know, we, we can do this. So uh, I want to start. Hubie Brown. Basketball encyclopedia. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> All right. Our girl, Doris Burke. Incredibly prepared and knowledgeable. Mm. Jeff Van Gundy. Working the fringes of the basketball universe on TV. All right. <laughs> 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 Another MJ, Mark Jackson. Oh, the fourth MJ. <laughs> Uh, the fourth MJ, um, passionate player insight. Mm, I like that. Bill Walton, <laughs> uh, calling Mars, Mars to basketball. <laughs> I I give Dave Patch so much credit. He's always like, I just feel like so much work. <laughs> oh, 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 hey, Bill Walton. If you say Bill Walton again, I'll say. It's legal in most states now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who else we got on this list here? Uh, PJ Carlissimo. Oh, man. Um, hard driving, incisive. Mm, okay. John Barry. Funny. Um, <laughs> funny. I would say funny and um, uh, frat boy. Fr- funny in a frat boy way. Okay. All right. I got Jalen Rose. Ooh. Ooh, Jalen Rose. Um, great player views and uh, won't pull punches. Mm, okay. Doug Collins. Basketball savant. All right. So last one, Mark, and I'm I'm curious on this one because sure. 
this guy gets a lot of interaction on Twitter when he says crazy things. As an analyst, Paul Pierce. Not afraid to hurt feelings. <laughs> That's a nice way yep. of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the truth, baby. It's the truth. <laughs> the truth. Hey, there you go, right? <laughs> there you go, yeah. I hope that worked for your lightning round. I tried to keep the words minimal. Hey, well, oh, you were awesome. It was, it was exactly, it was pitch perfect, not a shot. Yeah. Exactly how we envisioned it. Well, Mark, thank you so much. We look forward to more throwback suits and clips from the 90s. And And of course, hopefully, if we get uh, figure out a healthy, safe way to get this NBA season resumed, we look forward to hearing you there. Yeah, I I enjoyed uh, being your guest, guys. And uh, yeah, I'm going to rummage through my closet to see if I could find that red suit one more time. But in the meantime, uh, (laughs) I look forward to the next time I get a chance to chop it up with you guys. That was dope. All right, that's a great place to stop. Mark Jones was phenomenal. But now we got to switch gears. As we were recording this podcast on Wednesday, approximately 3 p.m., big-time news in the world of women's college basketball. Muffet McGraw retires after 33 years and two national championships at the helm leading the Irish, she retires. Now, within less than 10 minutes, her successor has already been named, and this was sort of a no-brainer. I thought it would go this way, but I didn't know it would go this way this quickly. Niel Ivey, her former assistant that took an assistant coaching position with the Memphis Grizzlies this season, is returning back to women's basketball and will be the next head coach at Notre Dame. Niel had her hand in all nine Final Fours that Muffet and the Irish went to. I believe she played in two i gotta look that up but either way i think it's a perfect fit it's a woman at the helm of irish women's basketball again and we know muffet mcgraw is passionate about women leaders and for me i mean for everybody but another note is a african-american woman so checks off two major boxes that we need to see more of in terms of leading women's basketball i'm excited i'm sure this is going to be something that my acc network team and i will be discussing in the near future and can't wait to see what the irish are up to this year All right, so that was the fun news breaking this week. But between our last shows, since we do this show every Thursday, we had the WNBA draft last Friday, Bruce. And for one, I know all of my folks in women's basketball are thrilled because it was the biggest viewership that the draft has had in history, um, partly because it was on ESPN, otherwise partly because there isn't much else to watch. And I think people were curious to see what the NFL virtual draft might look like pulling some things from the W draft. Um, But in the draft, one of the best moments before things even really got started was the time that the WNBA took out to honor Gigi Bryant and her teammate, Peyton Chester, and uh, and her two teammates, excuse me, and of course, Kobe. Yeah. I mean, Kobe and Gigi had almost become synonymous with uh, women's hoop in the WNBA. And it was just a, a really nice tribute because Kobe has gotten all the um, accolades that he more than deserves. But to see his daughter, his precious Gigi and her friends get that treatment, uh, I'm sure Vanessa had to look at that and just had to, as as we would say, if if she was a little Jewish grandmother, she would have been quelling. Oh, <laughs> Gigi Bryant, Peyton Chester, and Alyssa Altabelli. I just think we need to make a point of mentioning mentioning those girls' names as well. Uh, but yes, it was a beautiful tribute. 
Uh, I am continued to be impressed with the poise and the strength of Vanessa Bryant in particular. Um, just, man, just whew, prayers still continue to go out to all of those families involved. Um, but then after we got, took care of that, rightfully so, we got on to the business of the actual draft. Sabrina Ionescu, no brainer, goes number one to the New York Liberty and Bruce, her jersey sells out within an hour. That, I just love it. it. I think it's such a huge deal for the W to have a star of Sabrina's magnitude in the number one market. And hey, they're not playing in White Plains anymore, Dorothy. They are going to Brooklyn to the Barclays Center, which just elevates these two things, Sabrina and playing in an NBA arena in Brooklyn. It is so big for the W that those two things have happened to the top team in the, in the, in the top market team. I loved seeing NBA players already congratulating her. I think Katie sent out some tweets. Kyrie did as well. Um, I just think it's dope. I think she's an incredibly grounded, obviously talented kid. Um, I think she's going to be fantastic. New York, now they had, I can't remember exactly. I want to say they had like five first round picks. They've got a lot of kids and I don't know if they all will, will retain all of them, but they picked up a lot of players that are sort of this positionless basketball thing, just get up, run up and down and, and defend. I know Megan Walker was one of their selections out of UConn, Jasmine Jones out of Louisville. They went, I liked what New York is trying to do. I'm excited to see. So now Amanda Zalby, who we had her agent on last week, uh, she's got a lot of folks, a lot of options when it comes to that pick and pop, pick and roll, whatever she's trying to do. And they have a, a brand new coach, right? And they have a, a brand new general manager, I believe, so they're uh, they're starting with a clean slate in on a on a huge stage. Um, now we just got to get that season started in some sort of reasonable time frame so that we can take that momentum that started and not let it lag. We need to keep this thing going. Yeah, I agree with you. And Kathy Engelberg actually talked to our friend of BBB, Lachina Robinson, on her podcast. Um, and the WNBA is exploring all options. Kathy sees it as an opportunity because the league is unique in that it is 12 teams, 144 players, um, an opportunity to be innovative, of course, with safety being first. Um, so they are exploring every option possible to hopefully have a WNBA season in 2020. But just like many leagues, like, geez, there's so many unknowns and challenges that we have to figure out how to navigate Okay, so I have a question for you. Who was who or what was the biggest winner? This is like a buckets, boards, and blocks question, only it's a slightly yeah, different question. Right. I'm going to get it to you here. So who, which team or individual uh, was the biggest winner in the, in, in the WNBA draft? Was it A, the Liberty, B, Dallas, who also had some great draft picks, or C, the Oregon Ducks women's team from this past season. Oh, man. That's, oh, man. Okay. Let me think. A, B, or C. Uh, I'm going to go Dallas is the winner. Yeah. I mean, they got um, uh, Sabrina's uh, number one teammate there, right? Yeah. Um, With the okay. number two pick. Yeah, and they had like – Four out of the first nine picks, I think they had. Yeah, Dallas had a bunch of first-round picks, too. Satu Sabli, obviously, being the premier, they yes. took her number two. I think, I think of, okay, let me give you my logic, though, Bruce. All right. I'm going to go with Dallas 
because I think they already have something good in place. And the additions of Satu Sabli and the other three draft picks, they are most likely to be able to make an impact now, I feel like, right? If we we're to have a season this year. Oregon women's basketball, essentially they got to reload. Now they're on the map. I think it's a destination, particularly for players coming from, uh, I'll say Texas out to California. I mean, it's a great place to go. The Liberty, I still think they're a little bit of a ways away. They're going to be so young and the WNBA is driven not just by its young stars, but sort of the vets. Like there's a, there's a veteran grasp on the league. I think the Liberty are going to be really, really young and they just let go of Tina Charles. And so they're going to have to figure out their new identity. Dallas to me is a team that's in a position to plug and play, shake it up. Cool. And, and if, uh, you know, Ruthie Hebert up there in Alaska, you know, uh, she'll hopefully he'll, she'll have less trouble getting her live shot on TV, you know, now that she's going to be down in the lower 48. That was actually pretty funny. Remember the delayed reaction? They went to her when she got drafted. It's kind of like crickets. And then they went like the instant replay. Oh, I got drafted. I'm really happy. That was pretty That's funny. funny. Hey, we shouldn't make fun of technical difficulties on television. We've had our own. Indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks a bunch of times over to today's guest, Mark Jones of ESPN and ABC. His MJ stories were dope. I particularly loved the story about Harper. Loved his insight on Krause and Scottie Pippen as well. Thanks also to my loyal sidekick and producer, Bruce Bernstein, who also has a wealth of knowledge on MJ because he took it in in real time. And of course, thanks to our editor, Ben Wolfen, who's like me. We didn't get to take it in in real time. But anyway, we are still rolling with our five weekly shows here at Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show has Phil Jackson's friend of 40 years, Charlie Rosen, telling crazy stories you've never heard before. Full Court Press with Fantan Adams has UCLA coach Mick Cronin, who is one funny guy. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto and Aaron features more Last Dance stories in their favorite virtual playoff matchups. The Pure Hoops podcast on Friday is always co-hosted by Bulls OG, BJ Armstrong, who will be interviewed in the upcoming Last Dance episodes. BJ and Eric will discuss classic first-person memories of the player BJ referred to as simply M. And I'm back on Thursdays with buckets, boards, and blocks. Please remember all of the doctors, nurses, first responders, grocery workers, and support staffers who are helping the sick and the healthy get through this challenging time. We can never thank them enough. Please continue to practice social distancing, wash your hands, and pray for wisdom for our leaders. Treat everyone around you like a teammate because we're all in this together. Until next week, folks, enjoy dreaming about your hoops. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.